Welcome back to the Renaissance Podcast, episode 53. How are you, Papa Bear? Doing great, a little slower than you, but that's normally the case. (laughs) But in this regard, I mean the internet. Yeah, I'm live streaming this on Facebook uh, for the first time because I have super fast bandwidth, baby. Hi, Facebook. Um, (laughs) It's going to be weird for those people because obviously they can't hear you. So right. when you talk, it's just silence. And they have to imagine yeah. what it is you are saying. I like that. I like that game, the, the <laughs> what is Ray saying game. Right. Ooh, okay. So um, what is it like not having super fast bandwidth, Ray? Because um, I've had it now for four days, and I just I, I can't remember what it's like <laughs> to have slow, crunchy bandwidth. Like things happen instantly. Our, our internet is so fast now – Porn comes up before I even think of it. <laughs> Does it? Okay, mm-hmm. that's impressive. Yeah, that's impressive. Uh, yeah, no, I'm. Yeah. I'm um, I supposedly have high speed, but we all know that it's not. And it is the equivalent of masturbating with a cheese grater. Um, pleasurable and yet painful at the same time. Not that that stops you. No, no. Hey, we all have our hobbies, mm. and um, you know that's mine. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Um, I had to explain to Chrissy the other day that because I grew up in the 70s and 80s, my brain is like a C60 tape. Right. And that means that every couple of weeks it gets full and I have to bite off some sticky tape, stick it over the holes. Right. uh, Whatever those holes are called on the bottom, protective Copyright. And and re-record over the whole thing. Right. I have to re-record... Erase the whole thing, re-record over. It's the only way I can operate, and that's that's why she says, "You know, remember, remember that place we went to a year ago with the thing and the people, and they did the thing." And I'm like, "No, no, no. I have no, and no zero know. recollection of that and, at all." And I don't feel bad but, about it. Yeah, no, and yeah. quite honestly, it's a better way of living. You just erase <laughs> your memory every couple of weeks, and just you're like a, you're a new Do man. Over. You're, everything's Do fresh. Over. Yeah. Do over. <laughs> life's life's. Life's a constant do-over. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> like, I've been married three times. It's my third. Last. I, I literally cannot remember a single moment <laughs> from any of my previous marriages. I don't Nothing. I think it, you're supposed to say that. I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I know I was married to other people, and then there are photos to prove it, but I right. literally, I look at those and I go, that, that's not me. Yeah. That's I, I don't remember that at all. That can't possibly <laughs> have been me. That's uh, it's like right. it's like you know look watching a TV show from the 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 eighties and I'm like yeah I think I saw that once but I'm, I can't remember anything that happened in it like yeah. Yeah, it's very Just very vague, enjoy it. very distant yeah. Uh, yeah well I can't even do that there's not there's nothing to enjoy oh. anywho Aww. it's good I highly recommend it. Um, well, this uh, week on the Renaissance Show, we're kicking off a new uh, topic, new, new, new like little mini series. We've finished talking about the De Medici for a little while. Uh, last time, for people who don't remember, I think we were up to about fourteen thirty-four. Cosimo de Medici, yeah. the son of Papa Papa, Papa Joe. The, the the founder of that branch of the family and the founder of the Medici Bank, 
Cosimo took over Florence, finally, after right. returning from exile. He uh, was welcomed back to Florence, parties in the streets, naked midget <laughs> strippers everywhere, and... Uh, As it should be. The, yeah. the, 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 he banished all of his enemies. So we take a break from that, and I want to go back, back to 1417. Right. And, and start talking about the stories, uh, some stories about the book hunters, okay. the manuscript hunters of the 15th century. These are the guys that dedicated yeah. large chunks of their lives to finding, for us, future right. generations, the lost books of ancient Rome and ancient Greece before they would be lost forever. And I and I think it's I think it's very hard to comprehend. You still there, Facebook? Hey oh. Facebook. It's it's very hard to comprehend uh, what this was like in mm-hmm. the early 15th century. We just take for granted books, digital books now. Yeah. Everything I read is pretty much digital. Uh, except for sometimes, uh, you know, I have old secondhand books that, that are out of print or something like that, but usually it's digital. Right. And, you know, I try and, try and get into the head of guys like uh, Gian Francesco Poggio Bracoli, Bracciolini, or just Poggio as he's usually known, who's the mm-hmm. guy we're going to be talking about for the next few episodes. This, they, these guys who were walking away... Now, look, uh, he, here's my analogy. I, I I don't know if you do this, but I've done this for decades. Right. Uh, I still do it occasionally. I'll go to a big secondhand bookstore or a, or a book market, you know, uh, uh, like at the markets in Melbourne, and walk around just looking, just looking at old books, looking for a classic, looking mm-hmm. for the, the, a book that I've heard of but I've never been able to get a copy of or that I had years ago and I haven't been able to get it since or something like that. You know, I'm looking for the gems. I'm like, oh, look at this. It's a, <laughs> or it's a 1936 first edition of The Fountainhead by Iron Rand, right. which, which I actually have. Um, yeah, I used to do this in Melbourne all the time. Like this, There's some great second-hand bookstores in Melbourne and, uh, uh, you know, they, they have estate sales, old people die and no one wants their fucking books because no one reads. And yeah. so the, these books would turn up and you'd be going, oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. Um, so imagine these guys in, in four, the 1400s, they are actually looking for books that no one, certainly no one in the, in the West, has seen or read, sometimes never even heard of, but no one has seen or read for centuries, sometimes a thousand years, and so they, 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 they're trying to hunt these things down, but also they realize that there may be one copy of these books out there somewhere buried in a monastery, and, and, it's, and it's going to fall apart and it's going to disappear forever unless they find it. Right. They're like... Indiana Jones, man, they're out there, they're risking their lives, quite literally, they're risking their lives yeah, and, and spending a ton of money and a ton of time to try and rescue the last surviving copies of classic ancient Roman and Greek 
uh, masterpieces. And yeah. in most cases, they were unsuccessful, but occasionally they were successful. And, and I want to tell some of those stories over the next couple of episodes. Yeah. Let, let me ask real quick, uh, two questions um, so far. One, I know it's been a couple of months, but you gave me a percentage that has been estimated about how many of the ancient uh, classics have been found. You gave me a percentage of how many were found months ago. And two, um, I, and I'm sure we'll do this later to some degree, but I'm just fascinated by these guys literally going out traveling, which is dangerous, which is expensive, just to find books. Now, again, that doesn't sound like it's something that's really worth the risk or whatever, but you're, but you're absolutely right. These guys spent a lot of their lives, because travel was so slow, a lot of their time, a lot of their money, endangering them, their, their lives just to find books that are a 1,000 years old, you know, uh, 800 years old or whatever, because the ideas that were within them, they were literally hoping would be able to save them from their current struggles, either against the church or against themselves or against the ways things currently are in their, in their world. They're just literally looking for something that's so much more than a book. It's an idea that hopefully will bring about, you know, some, some level of greatness to match the ancient Romans and Greeks. And unfortunately, this is the only way that it could possibly be done. Do you remember the percentage that you gave me months ago? God, it might have been... Six months ago. Sorry, I I wasn't listening. I was clanning around with the people on Facebook. I wow. knew you fly while you wow. were talking and stuff like that. I, you know. I think you... <laughs> uh, doing your, you're not the only one, my friend. Um, I think you told me, was it 3%, 5% of ancient... 1%. 1%, thank you. That 1%. was foul. Yeah, no, it's... Uh, I have read that it, it... I mean, it's a guess, right? But right, it, the suggestion right. is that... Uh, we have found about 1%, or we, we, we have today, uh, possibly 1% yeah. of the books that were in the Great Library of Alexandria and places like that. Because of these guys. Uh, 1%. Because of so, these guys, right. Uh, well, largely because of these guys. Um, also because of Muslim clerics and scholars right. uh, in, in, in Baghdad and places like that during the Middle Ages who actually valued this knowledge. They kept some, which they then passed on to the Crusaders as they were stabbing them. <laughs> they were like, oh, here's Take a book this. that you might like. Uh, uh, Take yeah. this last copy of Aristotle. <laughs> um and a, a, a lot of Irish monks uh, want to talk about oh, that's Ireland right. at some stage. There were, yeah. There were, there's a book I, I was reading a while ago called "How the Irish Saved Civilization, Civilization. or something like yeah. that. A lot, mm-hmm. a lot of the Irish held on to these things. Um, to be sure, to be sure, there's a there was a Blarney Stone and saving the manuscripts for the world. You see, um, but yes, but then on top of that, guys like. Poggio Bracciolini. So let's get into his story. In the year 1417, mm-hmm. about 17 years before Cocoma, a.k.a. Cosimo de' Medici, took control of Florence, Poggio Bracciolini was book hunting in the middle of Germany. Yeah. Now, what was he doing in the middle of Germany? Well, funny story there. Uh <laughs> As you may remember, quite a few episodes ago, we were talking about the Council of Constance, mm-hmm. which was held in the 1400s, like 1414, 
14, 13, 14, 14, 14, 15. Went for a few years in Germany. Constance is a place in Germany. Um, where they got the three popes and the uh, Holy Roman Emperor said to the three... There were three popes at the time. Well, right. officially one, one pope and two anti-popes, but right. uh, no one could agree on who the actual pope and who the anti-popes were. <laughs> two uh, popes, too many. They all decided to meet... Yeah, they all decided to meet in Constance. Mm-hmm. Uh, ru- what's rule number one in uh, our podcasts, Ray? Um, do not accept dinner, lunch, or breakfast invitations. Hell, basically anything with food, um, and you're probably you'll probably live a lot longer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, they all failed. Uh, rule number <laughs> one. Uh, and. And they went to Constance where they, they, they didn't all get executed. A few other Good. people did get executed there. J- Jerome of Hus and uh, one of his friends who came to support him for being heretics. They were burned alive Damn. by the Christians. Because there's nothing, nothing Christians love more. Uh, I, I Certainly, I found this throughout my life. Nothing Christians love more than the smell of roasting human <laughs> flesh. So... Uh, <laughs> They, they got a little bit of that on at the Council yeah. of Constance. But they also, the Holy Roman Emperor fired the three popes um, and, and yeah. hired a new guy, which was Pope Marty V. Now, Poggio, our friend Poggio, was the uh, papal secretary of one of the popes that got fired, John XXIII, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. Old Pirate, uh, old Baldy, pirate, the pi- the former pirate, Baldassare Cossa. Right. So he he got fired, and he decided, you know what? Uh, uh, well, I've got a bit of time on my hands. Um, I might I might go hunting. I'm going hunting, right. yeah. fishing, hunting, camping. But he was hunting for books. Yeah. If I can add on to that, and and I don't want to make too big of a point of this, because I think we've said this before, but when you get fired by the Pope, who, let's face it, is disgraced and he's now in a jail, um, in a castle somewhere, I mean, to be a person without a boss is a risky thing if you just stay in one place. To be a person without some kind of protector, because everybody worked for somebody else. It's pretty much like today, but the point is he doesn't have a boss at this time. He's going to go out on his own. He's going to look for manuscripts because it means that much to him. He is a second generation humanist. He is motivated and inspired by Petrarch and others that we'll get into. So he is taking his life into his own hands, but this does mean so much to him. But technically, just because you worked for the Pope, doesn't mean a lot to a German now, especially when your Pope is in a German jail. So this guy is going to risk his you know, life and limb to go out and to look for these books, but it means that much to him. But, but again, just, just keep in mind that he has disconnected himself or he has been disconnected from the church, and, and which is a very powerful institution, but he is no longer attached to that now. He's just a guy walking around that could get jumped at any time by anybody because he has no one protecting mm. him. Sounds sexy. <laughs> Not in a good way. Uh, you know what? If I made it sound sexy, I do that a lot. Hey, I apologize. I, I didn't mean been, to. You spent five years waiting to get jumped on by a German. <laughs> That's true. I won't deny it. 
and it was worth it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad. Does she think so? Well, how, I'm not going to ask you how long. No, she doesn't, of course. Now, you know that, but you seem to wait a lot uh, shorter time than I did to get your German, but we're going to gloss right over that. We're just, we're just going to go on with the story. Well, my German's a fake German, and yeah, I waited two days. Oh. Anywho, yeah, and that was a long time. That... That I was like, oh fuck, is this ever going to happen? I look at my watch seriously. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, so uh, Poggio had heard uh, about a monastery uh, that had a, 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 a collection, a cache of yeah. old, mouldy, worm-eaten, yeah. practically indecipherable manuscripts, and he wanted to get his hands on them. Couldn't wait. Getting, Love nothing more than on. getting his nose yeah. right up in there. The smell. <laughs> smells like victory. <laughs> I love the smell of moldy book in the morning. Now. In a monastery. Of course, he's not He's not really interested in religious books. He, he wants to get his hands on these, these manuscripts from ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And most people mm-hmm. at the time wouldn't have had a clue why he would give a shit about such things. They had no inherent value. Nobody right. really cared. I mean, the only real value these books had for most people in the early 1400s was the the value of the parchment or the, the vellum that they were written mm-hmm. on, the animal skin. You could, you could right. scrape it clean and, and wash it so you could write a religious text on top of it save you the effort of having to kill a goat and skin it right. and, and, and make it skin. By the way, I watched a video. Did you see the video I posted to our Facebook group on that? No, I don't, I don't do that kinky stuff. No, I didn't see it. No. Fascinating. I found this video during the week from um, the Getty Museum put it out um, mm. of how to make parchment from scratch. They showed you, and, right. and then how to work with parchment, how to write on it, the whole thing, like doing it ye old-fashioned way. Check it out. It's on our right. Renaissance Facebook page. Fascinating stuff. So let me ask you this real quick. So what you're saying is to these Christians, mm. and, and these are all monasteries and these are all Christians, and you and I know that the actual people doing the copying don't give a shit about what they're copying. We'll get into that later. But the point is, to these Christians the paper of the books, the vellum of the books is worth more, is more valuable than the words and the ideas in those books. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, they, there, there are exceptions, I think, but for the most part, the, the, mm-hmm. the monks, the abbots, the friars in these monasteries generally didn't care about the text, particularly in right. uh, the these pagan books, even in the yeah. Christian books themselves, I don't think they really cared about them a great deal. Uh, but we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Now, Poggio despised all of these people generally. Um, he he didn't have much time for monks. Uh, thought they were a bunch of lazy good for nothings. But he right. he highly valued these these books, and he hoped that he would be able to find one of these manuscripts in a, in a monastery somewhere that would be a faithful copy of a faithful copy of a faithful copy going right back to 
before the Dark Ages. He wanted to find the, the lost treasures of antiquity. Mm-hmm. As I said, he is like Indiana Jones trying to track down. He's not looking for gold. He's not looking for skulls. Yeah. He's not looking for crystal skulls. Snakes. He's looking for yeah. He's looking for books. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we have him to thank for some of these ancient classics that we have to this very day. Now, now Poggio himself was a scribe. He mm-hmm. was a papal secretary. That's what he did all day, right? He he wrote yep. stuff for popes. For the, right. And he had managed to rise up through the ranks to become the right-hand man to Pope John the 23rd or the anti-pope as he is known right. today. Um, his job was to write down the pope's words, record his decisions, write his his thoughts for for international correspondence with cardinals around the world or with with kings and and, uh, 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 rulers, dictators in places like Milan and and Florence and Pisa and places like that. And it was a very, very important job and and he wrote very, very elegant Latin. He spent all day with the Pope and knew his thinking intimately. He's a bit like our mate Sejanus we've been talking about on the Tiberius show. Like he's standing next to the Pope all day long. But of course, as we know by 1417, old Pope Baldy, the pirate, (laughs) was sitting in a German jail waiting for Papa Joe Medici to bail him out. It's going to take a while. Um, After the Council of Constance. Now, Poggio, of course, was there at the Council of Constance, and uh, he was present during the trial of uh, Jerome of Prague. One of the biographies Mm -hmm. that I read of Poggio that was written around about 1800 has a copy of one of his letters back to Florence where he talks at length about the Jerome trial. And he... uh, speaks very highly of Jerome's intelligence and composure and arguments. Now, remember, this is all about Hus and and their arguments that the church was corrupt mm-hmm. and needed to be brought back to being humble and poor. That was the, that was the source of the heresy right. that these guys were accused of, that they said, you know what, the church is rich and corrupt. It's selling off its... its Titles, its positions, its benefices, its its selling off uh, forgiveness for sins. None of this is in the Bible. This is all bullshit. We need to get back, baby. We need to get back to where we once belong. And they said, you know what? We're going to burn you alive. Thanks very much for coming. Here's here's Poggio's account of that. Mm -hmm. No Stoic ever suffered death with such constancy of mind. And not just because he was at the Council of Constance, although that couldn't have hurt. Right. He's like, well, I guess I'm in Constance. I should, (laughs) the very least I can do is have constancy of mind while I'm being burned alive. In Constance. When When he arrived at the place of execution, he stripped himself of his garments, sexy, 
knelt down before the stake, still sexy, aroused, to which he was soon after tied with wet ropes and a chain. Very sexy. Hard as a rock. I'm, I'm getting it. Yeah. Then great pieces of wood. Yeah. I've got a great piece of wood. Intermixed with straw. <laughs> Don't stop. Don't stop. Piled as high. <laughs> you're close. You're edging. We're piled as high as his breast. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Packs. When fire was set to the pile, he began to sing a hymn. <laughs> Not so sexy. No. I'm starting to lose it. She's now. coming down now. Yeah. Which, in order that he might not see it, in order that he might not see it, he said, come this way. Yeah, back to sexy. I'm there. And kindle it in my sight. Okay, so let me let me go back here. Stop fucking around. Right, right. When the executioner was going to apply the fire behind him. Yes. So he's on top of this pile of, of, of wood and straw. Yeah, he is. The, 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 the executioner is setting the fire behind him. Jerome says, no, 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 come and do it in front of me. Oh, For God. had I been afraid of it, I should never have come to this place. Thus... Perished a man in every respect exemplary, except in the erroneousness of his faith. I was a witness of his end and observed every particular of its process. He may have been heretical in his notions and obstinate in persevering in them, but he certainly died like a philosopher. Wow. And and if we could just not... If exactly, if we could just not lose sight of the irony here. So here's Jerome and 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 Hans Juice, Juice Hans, whatever his name was. I'm sorry, I can't remember right now. John Hoos. There we go. And they're both teaching that everyone should obey the direct teachings of Jesus, even if it conflicts with what the Catholic Church says. And while they're doing this, the Pope and the and the various conferences, the the, the very ecumenical, ecumenical councils are are battling each other to see who is going to have supreme power over the church. So they're sitting there dickering about who's going to be in charge because it's all about money and power anyway. This guy is telling everybody to follow the direct teachings of Jesus. And even if Jesus did not exist, like you did your little live Facebook video, I think yesterday. If you're if you're still being a decent human being, you know, good for you. But they're sitting there arguing about power, and, and this guy's trying to tell everybody to be good people, and he's the one who's burning at the stake. Just just don't let that irony pass you by. Yeah, yeah, no, they're uh, you know, John and Jerome are saying, hey, let's uh, let's get back to basics here and be good <laughs> right. Christians. And the the very leaders, the three popes, and the holy holy. Mind you, Roman <laughs> Emperor. Uh, like, nah, let's, nah. Let's, we'll just burn you to death. How about that? Yeah, kill you. So it was the Council of Constance that brought Poggio to southern Germany in the first place. Now, Constance is on the border uh, of modern Germany, close to Zurich. Mm-hmm. Poggio, of course, back then there wasn't a Germany, Germany as we think of it today. Right. It was, you know, just a, a collection of uh, smaller fiefdoms and kingdoms. Right. Um, but Poggio, at this point, is a man without a master, no job. He can't really go back to the Vatican either because there's a new sheriff in town, Pope Marty. Marty! 
Can I have a job? He's trying to I get don't his. Know you. Yeah. Yeah. Three and a half gigawatts or whatever it is. Um, and his income had disappeared overnight. Now, yeah. remember that Pope Pirate Baldy had been promised by Ziggy, the Holy Roman Emperor, that he would be the last man standing. Poggio probably thought that was the case as well. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't wealthy. The the Castato from 1427, the, the Florentine tax that assessed right. your assets, this is 10 years later, showed that he was, even at that stage, he was a man of fairly modest means. And 10 years earlier, it would have been much less because he actually um, had a pretty good 10 years in, in between those times. So right at this moment, he... he doesn't have much money, doesn't have a job, yeah. and strangely doesn't seem to be in any hurry to find a new job either. Um, in fact, he called it in one of his letters. He said, I think I'll just podcast for a while and <laughs> see what, see see what happens. <laughs> yeah, no, see I- how that goes. Fif- Fifteen years later, <laughs> he was still broke, and people are going... Well, you're going to get a job, but he was like, "Who's fucking? No one will employ me now. I've been podcasting for fifty years. <laughs> according, can't to, even get a job interview. According to them, I have no skill can't, sets. <laughs> can't even get a job interview where the ad says looking for people with experience in podcasting. Still can't get a job interview. Oh God! <laughs> Seriously, That's, like what yeah. the fuck? It's a vast anyway. conspiracy. No, you're right. When he when he was the the, the papal secretary, he was making like three hundred. Um, uh, Florence a year, which is not bad, but I'm sure he had expenses and he's very modest now. And again, he's got a certain skill set. He could, to the right person, provide a, a valuable service, but no, he wants, he's got some free time. He wants to go look for books, but like you said, he needs money. So he's got to somehow work on that because we're going to go into the expenses of what it, of what it's like to travel around, but he is going to have to hit up somebody. I think he needs a sugar daddy. Yeah, don't we all need a sugar daddy? And <laughs> shout out to shout out to Kino. Hey, Kino, he needs a Kino. They should change that saying. He needs a Kino. Yeah, he needs a Kino. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, uh, so he he's going to go looking for books. He's he's got to wait for the smoke to clear. Really, he can't he can't as I said right. he can't go back to the Vatican. <laughs> Has to no. wait and see what happens. Maybe, maybe Pope Pirate uh, Pope Pirate Baldy, yeah, will get let out of jail and will end up somewhere else, and we'll hire him. Then he doesn't really know. He's just yeah. waiting for the smoke to clear. So he's going to go book hunting now. Poggio, of course, wasn't the first book hunter. Petrarch gets that honor. Mm-hmm. We talked about him quite a few episodes ago. He was the guy who pieced together. Livy's history of Rome in the 1330s, wow. so almost yeah. a century before Poggio, Petrarch yeah. was out there looking for books. He also rediscovered some lost Cicero and some other books. But more importantly, Petrarch inspired this next couple of generations of book hunters. Absolutely. Now, when Poggio... And the other humanists read the books by ancient authors that Petrarch found. Mm-hmm. They would often read in them quotations from books they'd never heard of by authors they'd never heard of. Like uh, Cicero would say, 
you know what? You should really, uh, you know, I read this, uh, I read Lucretius and he, he said, blah, 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 blah. And, and Lucretius is on the nature of things. Right. He said this and this and this. And, and you know, whilst it's a brilliant poem, I don't really agree with this. But And they're like, who the fuck is this Lucretius guy? And what is <laughs> right. this on the nature of things? Yeah. Where do I get that? And they jumped on Amazon and they're like, well, Lucretius <laughs> on the nature of things and it's not coming up. So these monasteries were basically the Amazon of their time. They were right. that was that was how you Amazoned back then, as you had to go to monasteries. Yeah. Now one um, one example uh, is the Roman rhetorician, 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 rhetorician. Let's go with that. That's yeah, yeah, okay. Quintilian. Yeah. yeah. Now uh, during the. Year of the Four Emperors. Right. Quintilian opened a public school of rhetoric. During the Year of the Four Emperors, which, as we all know... <laughs> right. ...was uh, your favourite year, Woo! 69. Yeah. Um, Quintilian opened a public school of rhetoric in Rome, and uh, apparently among his students were Pliny the Younger and maybe even Tacitus... Nice. One of my favourite authors. Right. Emperor Vespasian made Quintilian a consul. Nice. So he was a big deal. Yeah. In his 12-volume textbook on rhetoric called the Institutio Oratoria, generally referred to in English as the Institutes of Oratory, Oratory. I never had how to say that word. Oratory. We'll go with that. Oratory. Oratory. Yeah. <clears throat> which was published around 95 CE, Quintilian wrote that Mesa and Lucretius are certainly worth reading and then went on to mention Varro of Attax, Cornelius Severus, Silaeus mm-hmm. Bassus, Gaius Rabirius, Albino Varnus Pedo, Marcus Furius Bibiculus, Lucius wow. Achaius, Marcius Pacavius, and other authors whose work he greatly admired. And the humanists were like, who the fuck are all these guys? Ah, <laughs> oh, now we, we need done. to go and find all fuck. these books. <laughs> yeah. No, but We just found about- Quintilian. <laughs> now we need to go find all these guys. There's more. But the thing about Paggio, and we're going to go into this later, so not only does he have the beautiful handwriting, not only can he write super fast, but he has, because he is such a dedicated book hunter, he has this incredible memory uh, that he can remember these names and these book titles and these subjects. And so when he does go out and look, he's not just willy-nilly grabbing something either written down or in his head. He's got a, a list of people, of topics, of book titles. He's, you know, he's going to remember those as he's going through to try to help him find not just anything, but something that would really make a difference in their lives. He wants to be another Petrarch. He wants to find something magnificent. Yeah. Now, it turns out all of the, that list of names that I read out from Quintin right. before, the works of those other guys has been lost forever. Oh, that was right. They were never found except mm-hmm. Lucretius. Wow. Okay. Now, who found Lucretius? Poggio. Poggio. And who found Quintilian? Poggio. 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 <laughs> yeah. Poggio. Yeah. He found yeah. he found those two, but the rest he never and no one ever found. Damn. Now, 
but of course, they didn't know that at the time, that they wouldn't be able to find all those books. So they went right. searching for them around Europe. Um, now, they, they'd sort of already scoured the monasteries of Italy, so they were going further afoot. Petrarch had found the manuscript of Cicero's speech Pro Archaea in Liege in mm-hmm. Belgium, and he found the copy of Sextus Propertius's manuscript in Paris... So that inspired these this, these next generations of book hunters to go further afield. Right. Now, I want to talk about Propertius because I don't think we've come up against him before. He was a major poet during the reign of Augustus, friend of Virgil, mm-hmm. patron was Macenus, our old nice. friend. Yeah. Uh, he, he died, Propertius, around 15 BCE, quite young, about 30 years of age. Mm-hmm. Known for his four books of elegies, which contain in total about 92 poems. One of the major poets of the uh, elegiac couplet. Now, Ray, no one knows more about elegiac couplets than you. Mm -hmm. Can you just explain to the audience what an elegiac couplet is? Thank you. Is this something where where you're writing about... Well, I know that he falls in love with an older woman, Cynthia, and he, most of his books, or at least his early works, are about her. And you're right, he does come to the attention of Messias, Messinus, uh, Augustus's mate, and um, he's going to write under his name, he's going to give Messinus praise as well as Augustus. But as far as I know, isn't it pretty much, and, and I don't mean this as tawdry as it sounds, it's almost like he's letting the public know it's like it's like it's a blog or something he's telling the world about his ongoing relationship with this woman good and bad i i think it's pretty much a praise of her what she means to him or the impact she's had on his life you're right that's what the poems are about right but i asked you what is an elegiac couplet okay i now, it's a specific oh, wait, structure wait, 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 wait. i don't know you 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 have a degree i had my something <laughs> you're 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 married to uh, a former english teacher or a current english teacher current, current english teacher. yeah yeah current english teacher uh, I forgot when you retired, you didn't let your wife retire first. You didn't say, no, honey, it's fine. <laughs> you um, you I, keep working. I got this. Yeah. yeah. I got this. Uh, <laughs> you retire. I'll I'll keep working my ass off to uh, you know, put food on the table. You said, hey, I'm going to retire and sit at home and uh, make out with the goat all day. Uh, you keep going to work. Cause, it's consensual. Uh, Don't. I, I, need, I need the health care yeah. for work uh, offers. <laughs> I forgot because like, you're 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 like you're a, you're a, you're a studly man in the tradition of uh, you know the, the the great knights of old, right? And it's true. Uh, I will stay at home and defend the house from That's snakes true, while you go of, off to I'm a, work. I'm afraid of snakes. Yeah, you go hide in the crypt <laughs> while the night king comes with all the dead bodies. And I will stay up here right. where it's safe. Gotcha. So what is the specific a, definition? No, you don't, you don't want to have a guess at what an elegiac couple, elegiac couple is. Is it a certain structure, a poem? Oh, just yes, but stop guessing. Like, But how am I, I if I don't know, no, I, I have to guess. That's how well, this works. Well, don't guess. You're not going to guess. This is, not, this is not the sort of thing you're going to guess. Okay. What is it? It's not like. 
what number am I thinking between <laughs> one and ten? And seven, you've got a seven. <laughs> Shit, that was right. How did you? I knew it came to me. I swear to I swear to the Almighty, baby Jesus. It's because it just popped right into it's my because, head. It's because it's the whole number that's closest to six point nine. <laughs> that's how you guessed. It was pretty much, pretty much. Okay, well, you guessed a little bit right. It's about the structure. Now, an elegiac couplet is right. a poetic form right. used originally by the Greek poets and then adopted by the Romans, um, usually right. used for smaller scale poems than epic poems. Mm-hmm. Each couplet consists of a hexameter verse, six feet, yeah, followed by a pentameter verse. Do we care? Are you with me? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm we joking. can because I'm this joking. show is about knowledge, Detail. Ray. Gotcha. We are, it's about right. understanding. See, if you if you talk about stuff and you don't understand it, right. then you might as well be a Christian. <laughs> like you, you have to. <laughs> if we're just gonna, you boom, know, boom. make shit up. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> the dactyl. Is made up of a stressed uh, long syllable and two unstressed short syllables repeated five times to create a pentameter line. A dactyl is a foot, mm-hmm. which has a long syllable followed by two short syllables. Dactyl. Okay? Okay. Long syllable, two short syllables. Gotcha. Um, in fact, here's a, here's a funny thing. The word dactylus mm-hmm. is actually a dactyl. Long syllable, dac, two short syllables, tillus, oh, dactylus. Iron, ironic. So it, the word dactylus is a dactyl. Do you know what that's called, Ray? A double dactyl? <laughs> what? That's called a pterodactyl. Oh, for, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's called autological. <laughs> Aut- okay, I... A uh, word that expresses a property that it also possesses. Autological. Uh, Cam's word corner. Want, I didn't know I was his, in it. His, Uncle Cam's word corner. <laughs> Here's an example <laughs> okay. of an autological word that you will you will understand. The word short right. is short. <laughs> I understand. You like that? that? Uh, I you didn't get say that? I like it. Yeah. I understand it though. Auto. Ontological. The word noun is a noun. The word English is English. True. The word pentasyllabic has five syllables. Ah. And the word word is a word. <laughs> so they're all autological. Right. Is this mm. what you do in between research? No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The op- do you know what the opposite of an autological word is? Uh... An unautological. An, an <laughs> <laughs> no, what? Tell me. Uh, heterological. Oh, I don't like those. <laughs> you prefer homological. Pretty much. Uh, yeah. In Vegas. By- Vegas. <laughs> Vegas. <laughs> Vegas logical. By Vegas logical. Yeah. Vegas logic. Yeah. If it. Happens in Vegas. It stays in Vegas. That's Vegas logic. It's Vegas logic. Boom, baby. Heterological. One that does not apply to itself. Um, so long. Right. The word long is not long. Monosyllabic 
is not monosyllabic. Right. Um, hetero means uh, different from itself. So heterosexual mm-hmm. means that you are having sex with uh, somebody of a sex different right. to yourself. Okay. okay. Is it your new um, internet so, speed that's allowed you to do all yeah. this? Oh, this broadband, <laughs> man. Broadband. I can just research. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we have get this to look forward get, to. Get down and right. stuff. All right. Um, now, getting back to uh, the elegiac couplet, yeah. it was uh, used by ancient poets because it sort of contrasted what they thought was a rising action of the first verse right. with a falling quality of the second. The first verse with the six feet would bring you up. Right. And then the second verse, the pentameter verse, would bring you back down. So it was like a wave. Oh, I like those. Coleridge right. wrote this. In the hexameter rises the fountain's silvery column. In the pentameter, I falling in melody back. <laughs> mm. Our old friend Catullus was the first major Roman emperor elegiac poet. Right. What do we remember him most for, Catullus? Um, nope. Gone. What do we remember him for? The T-shirt that I wore around Italy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Catullus 16, <laughs> Pedicabo ego vos et iromabo. Oh, God. I will sodomize you and fuck you in the face. <laughs> um, or I will fuck you in the ass and fuck you in the face. Um, Catullus. Cam's way of saying hello. Not. Yeah. Not elegiac, by the way. Yeah, I walked around Italy wearing that, just hoping one person... <laughs> Right. Would be able to read the Latin and go, oh, okay, let's go. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> worst pickup game ever, right? Mm. Arguably, the most famous elegiac couplet in Latin is a two-line poem mm-hmm. from Cali Marcus. The poem was called "Odi et Amo," oh, ah, no. Odi uh, um, Amo, O A M O, Odi et Amo. Mm-hmm. It goes like this in English: I hate and I love. Why do I do this? Perhaps you ask. I know not, but I feel it happen and am tormented. Ooh, thank you very deep. much. And yeah. seen. <laughs> Um, so that's that's uh, elegiac poetry. Yeah. Now, getting back to Propertius. Yep. Yep. Before you move on, as I said, uh, sort of major poet in Augustus's day. Apparently popular. At least he says he was very popular <laughs> and even scandalous in his own day. Right. And it seems like he he must have been relatively popular because uh, some of his poems have been. Found written in graffiti at Pompeii. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, that makes some. That's being preserved now. Uh, but he he was a little bit scandalous because he wrote poems like this. This is one of his lines. But now the shrines decay in deserted groves. All worship money. Now piety is vanquished. Money drives out loyalty. Justice is bought for money. Money rules the law. And without the law, then shame. Right. Huh. Which sounds remarkably contemporary. Right. 
because it's been copied. Money drives out loyalty. Justice is bought for money. Money rules the law. Just it goes to show you. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. People are people are people. Right. If I can give a slightly different twist about why he was popular, uh, why his writing was popular, and again, we're not really sure to what degree he was popular, just because he says he was doesn't. But but the the type, the language that he used did inspire people once it was rediscovered. But I was listening to an Oxford professor, and she was saying that one of the reasons that his contemporaries liked his poetry was that um, they found it fascinating, as in for the Roman mindset, um, to be in love was to accept that that love, that relationship is going to be equal parts, a pain in the ass and pleasure because love is complex, love is complicated. And for a man to admit that he's in love, what he really is saying is that a part of his life, a part of his day is given over to a woman who has control over him. So, yeah, it's like there's a part of you that is not focused on rational thinking because you know how the the Romans could be passionate, yes, but they were were engineers, they were soldiers, they were building their empire. It's about sacrifice and what you can do for the family and loyalty to the state. And so what made it kind of... um, Dramatic. What made it edgy was that a man who's in love is like, there's a part of him that's not giving his 100% all to the state. He's going to go run off today. Instead of working, he's going to go spend time with his woman. And it was looked down upon. And yet for those who were in love and those who, who, who seemed to be happy, people were jealous of them. So it was a very complex thing. It wasn't just he's writing because he's in love with this older woman who's rocking his world because she's teaching him all the ins and outs of, of sex. It's the idea that it's love is good and bad at the same time. And if you're willing to go through that, then you're a pretty interesting or, or strong character. And they were, and they were interested in following someone who was going through this. Do you think Tiberius was a big fan of Propertius's love poetry? <laughs> I, I was I watching <laughs> I was watching I Claudius uh, yesterday. Love that. And the, the first first episode has. I, I gotta. I tell you, it holds up. Like I, I've never watched. I've never watched it before. Well, I don't. I, I don't know if it For does. Me. Honestly, right. it's 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 a bit. It's a bit dated. But one thing so far, I've only watched the first episode. But one thing I cannot criticize it for is its historical accuracy Mm -hmm. like we've just we've just covered all of this stuff and i'm watching and i'm going yeah this is this is this is fucking spot on they have taken this right straight from tacitus and suetonius robert graves is is, uh, i've never read his book either but it's obviously incredibly uh yeah loyal it's incredibly loyal to the historical sources that we have uh, in terms of, I mean, the depiction of Livia as this uh, Lady Macbeth, I, I right. don't completely buy, but it's possible. I mean, it's hinted at mm-hmm. in those sources that she could have been behind something. I mean, they, they sort of depict her in this as poisoning Drusus, right. um, her own son, because he was he wrote a letter to Tiberius suggesting that they uh, force... Augustus to return the Republic, and so she kind of had him killed, and that's a bit, nice. and that's a little bit dicey. Yeah. But apart from that, the rest of it, I was like, yeah, fucking. And, and look, I don't like Brian Blessed's depiction of Augustus either. Mm. He's a bit too. He's a bit too. Why say? Blah 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 bl
Well, yes, but that's not how I depict. Oh, absolutely. That's not how I see Augustus in my head. I see him as, um, yeah. I don't know, much more serene, much more matter of fact. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah. that's 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 neither here nor there. But anyway, apart from all those things, those couple of things, very, very uh, good. But yeah, there's this one scene in that first episode where Tiberius, he's he's been forced to divorce Vespania, right. of, sorry, Vipsania, right. and he's... Uh, so- <laughs> Married, married to Julia, the slut whore. And then he goes to visit Vipsania. And he's like, but I love you so much. I need you. And she's going, oh, but you divorced me. Yeah. This guy. And he goes, I was made to. They couldn't have made me divorce Ooh. you. Oh, I'm so sorry, my sweet. And he's such a, you Pansy. know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that came after the rather homoerotic scene of him wrestling with Drusus. Yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> and, and Julia accuses him of being a little bit... Uh, right. Bit, bit of a ass lover. She accuses him. She, she tells him to go out and find himself a man, a boy child at, some, at one point and recommends one. Damn. She goes, I've had him. You should have him yeah. too. He's hairless. Oh, go get him. Take him. Awkward. When she's having one of her drunk rants. Anyway. Yeah. How'd I get onto that? I, oh, oh, love poetry. Right. Yeah, yeah. There you go. How do you segue so, from So, Quintilian. That? Yeah, we don't. Not well, anyway. <laughs> um, Quintilian. Right. Now, Quintilian's uh, book on uh, oratory had largely been forgotten during the Middle Ages, existed only in fragments until 1416 when Poggio discovered a complete copy of it. He found a complete manuscript of Quintilian's books in the monastery of St. Gaul, um, also called St. Gallen, I think, in Switzerland. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but I'm going with that. G-A-L-L-E-N. About a day's walk from Constance. And he found it buried in rubbish and dust in a filthy dungeon. Not even in the library. And right. I posted a photo on the on the Facebook page the other day of the library as it is today mm-hmm. in the Monastery of St. Gaul. It's this magnificent, beautiful library. But he didn't find it in the library. He found it on the floor of the of the tower. Here's how Poggio himself put it in a letter mm-hmm. in 1416 to the Italian scholar of Greek, Guarino di Verona. Um, and, and he's talking about it in terms of Quintilian himself being kept prisoner right. in this dungeon. He's like anthropomorphizing the book and making it out to be Quintilian himself. He said, by heaven, if we had not brought help, he would surely have perished the very next day. There is no question that this glorious man, so elegant, so pure, so full of morals and of wit, could not much longer have endured the filth of that prison, the squalor of the place, and the savage cruelty of his keepers. He was sad and dressed in mourning, as people are when doomed to death. His beard was dirty and his hair caked with mud, so that by his expression and appearance it was clear that he had been summoned to an undeserved punishment. He seemed to stretch out his hands and beg for the loyalty of the Roman people, to demand that he be saved from an unjust sentence, Mm -hmm. and to feel it a disgrace 
that he who had once preserved the safety of the whole population by his influence and his eloquence could now not find one single advocate who would pity his misfortunes and take some trouble over his welfare and prevent his being dragged off to an undeserved punishment. But how often things turn out spontaneously, which you dare not hope, as Terence says. For by good luck, as much ours as his, while we were doing nothing in Constance, an urge came upon us to see the place where he was being kept prisoner. This is the monastery of St. Gaul, about 20 miles from Constance. And so several of us went there to amuse ourselves and also to collect books of which we heard that they had a great many. There, amid a tremendous quantity of books, which it would take too long to describe, we found Quintilian still safe and sound, though filthy with mould and dust. For these books were not in the library as befitted their worth, but in a sort of foul and gloomy dungeon at the bottom of one of the towers where not even men convicted of a capital offence would have been stuck away. Wow. Yeah. You're getting right too. Jeez. Yeah, right? Yeah. One of his friends Mm -hmm. who was with him on this trip, Cincius de Rusticus, wrote this in a letter to someone back in Florence. But when we carefully inspected the nearby tower of the Church of St. Gaul, in which countless books were kept like captives and the library neglected and infested with dust, worms, soot, and all the things associated with the destruction of books, we all burst into tears, thinking that this was the way in which the Latin language had lost its greatest glory and distinction. Truly, if this library could speak for itself, it would cry loudly, You men who love the Latin tongue, let me not be utterly destroyed by this woeful neglect. Snatch me from this prison in whose gloom even the bright light of the books within cannot be seen. These were, in that monastery, an abbot and monks totally devoid of any knowledge of literature. What barbarous hostility to the Latin tongue. What damned dregs of humanity. But why do I hate a tribe of barbarians for this kind of indifference to literature when the Romans, the parents of the Latin tongue, have inflicted a greater wound and heaped greater abuse on our native language, the prince over all the others? I call to mind innumerable libraries of Latin and Greek books in ruins in Rome, which were carefully built by our ancestors, according to an inscription in Greek letters which was removed from the Porta Capena through one man's concern. These libraries were destroyed partly through ignorance, partly through neglect, and partly so that the divine face of Veronica might be painted." Anyway, I think that the perpetrators of this loathsome crime and those who did not stop them ought to suffer the severest punishment. Indeed, if the laws say that he who has killed a man deserves capital punishment, what penalty and what suffering shall we require for those who deprive the public of culture, of the liberal arts, and actually of all nourishment of the human mind, without which men can hardly live at all or live like beasts? Two things used to stand out in Rome, the libraries and the monumental buildings, which, and I shall omit the libraries, easily surpassed in size and beauty the pyramids of Egypt, the Basilica of Cyrus, 
and other wonders of the world which Herodotus mentions. Every day you see citizens, if indeed a man should be called a citizen who is so degraded by abominable deeds, demolishing the amphitheatre or the hippodrome or the Colosseum or statues or walls made with marvellous skill and marvellous stone and showing that old and almost divine power and dignity. Truly I would prefer and would pay more for a small marble figure by Phidias or Praxiteles than for a living and breathing image of the man who turns the statues of those glorious men into dust or gravel. But if anyone asks these men why they are led to destroy marble statues, they answer that they abominate the images of false gods. O voice of savages who flee from one error to another, for it is not contrary to our religion if we contemplate a statue of Venus or of Hercules made with the greatest of skill and admire the almost divine art of the ancient sculptors. But mistakes of this kind are to be blamed not only on those we have just mentioned, but on the former governors of the city and on the popes who have continually consented to this destructive behavior which lowers the dignity of mankind. Damn. And as we're going to see later on, um, you haven't seen anything yet when it comes to complete intolerance, strictness for um, the, the faith of Christianity, and to get rid of everything else. We're going to go into that later when we talk to the monks, but <clears throat> I know we're running over time, but I was actually thinking about that very thing today, reading uh, one of the books that, that we're using if you really just stop and think about the cultural, literary, and um, intellectual peak the Romans were at, say Cicero's time, Caesar's time, and as we've seen, uh, uh, things, uh, certain events come along, and then Rome goes into civil war, and then it becomes an empire, and then it and then it splits a couple times, and it comes back, and then it's overrun by, uh, for lack of a better word, barbarians. To to go from that peak all the way down and then have to start over in some ways. And then for these guys to look for their, for these books to try to help jumpstart that do over that Renaissance, if you will, and to only find 1% of the books from that Roman peak, that truly is a sad thing that we had to go through as, as a, as a species. And you just wonder where we, we would be now if we didn't have to go through the Middle Ages. It, it's just, it's extremely sad. And, and I completely agree with that. People who allow this kind of thing to happen to let ideas and freedom and debate and discourse fall and be punished, they should be punished um, severely. I agree. Well, that's it for this show. Episode 53 will be back next week with more stories about Poggio and his search for the great books. 